Hi and welcome to the MMU Photography Podcast, a weekly informal conversation with the guests that have been kind enough to join us during our Wednesday morning Village Green Lecture Series. The lectures this term are centred around the theme of photographic communities. We will be welcoming a range of photographers, artists, organisers and academics to talk about the importance of working collectively in their research and practice. This week Sarah and I were joined by Gideon Cobble. The conversation had been two parts. In the first part we discuss education, community and institution, sound and working with bands. In part two we talked about photography and sponsorship, funding, cameras, daily routines and seeking out a dialogue. So I'm, uh, my name's uh, Gideon Koppel. I'm, I'm a, a filmmaker and an artist. Um, and I use both words because um, my undergraduate degree was a, a photography, film and television degree at, at London College of Printing, or what was then the London College of Printing. And my postgraduate degree was at the Slade. And, and at the Slade, I, I was working in Stuart Brisley's studio, which was the... Um, mixed media studio they called it at the time and at, at, at Manchester School of Art I'm, I'm professor of film um, and um, I, I suppose I'm sort of best known as a documentary filmmaker but I've always been quite um, vociferous in in sort of wanting to um, redefine the notion of documentary and take it away from the the sort of status of documentary that even academics have given it where they they um conflate what i call factual program making with with ideas of documentary and there's a um an american academic called bill nichols who who wrote i think i think i can't remember the date of it but it goes back i think to the 80s he he was writing about documentary is growing out of avant-garde filmmaking and not trying to equate it with the world of journalism and 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 that was something that for me was was so liberating um because um in a sense in a sense you there is almost an argument that 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 everything can can relate on some level to a notion of documentary i mean i I made um, film commercials for for a number of years, to sort of um, to, as as a way of earning living. And and on one one hand, film commercials are highly constructed pieces of of narrative, and they have to be highly constructed, partly because of the 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 kind of the level of resource and and funding that you're working with, um, also because you have a, a kind of battery of so-called clients who are sort of checking everything all the time but but also there's there's the idea that you, you you're, you're telling a so-called story in you know anything from 20 seconds to maybe a minute and a half and and so it has to run very kind of efficiently but but even so i would think in most commercials i i was using the camera to kind of look at situations that i'd set up knowing that I was only going to pick, pull out fragments of those situations. So I'm constantly looking for, for, for kind of gestures and intimacies uh, within the camera, which in a sense is what, what you do as, as, as a more kind of conventional documentary filmmaker. Um, yeah. and, and as a photographer as well, I guess, um, that kind of aligns um, to that discipline. Um, I, I was wondering, I know me and Ben had a quick conversation beforehand and 
um, you had a question about kind of um, institutions and power structures and I think kind of that, that came up quite a bit in sort of just that introduction and conversation. In your talk you, you sort of mentioned very briefly and then we ran out of time you sort of mentioned that um, in working in an institution and um, a community and and the kind of parallel between those two things and you were sort of suggesting that it is both a good and a bad thing working situating your practice with an institution i mean in terms of my own work at the moment literally just before 30 seconds before i in fact finished the conversation prematurely to, to 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 talk with you i was talking with one of my producers um who's producing my film about the united nations and and we were talking about um the, 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 there was a location agreement that before COVID was was holding things up, and we're talking about you know a kind of thirty-page legal document that's been been doing the rounds of, of of every lawyer in the United Nations, and finally it was it was Guterres, the Secretary General, who kind of saw that this was becoming a real problem and got a new team of lawyers to look at it, and we've we've it's it's now coming through i mean we're now able to negotiate the kinds of access that that we need but but it, it's it's taking that i mean the amount of energy that you know there, there's me there are three extremely experienced producers that we we have a team of lawyers working on it the, the united nations have a team of lawyers working on it and then one of one of the main funders is universal studios and they have a team of lawyers working on it and it it, it, you know, this is this is all kind of the problems of, of institutions. I mean, in that sense, the United Nations is kind of the mother of all institutions. <laughs> but but um, but it's it 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 sort of seems to me that that the institutions can't continue in that way. It feels like we're at a point of change, doesn't it? I think it's a conversation that's been quite common actually amongst a lot of artists and even amongst students I, I think it's, it's a sort of awareness that something is shifting yeah i i think so um but but i mean i it's something that really interests me and i i um i, I i've created a link and it's it's not a link that i've i've made um intellectually it's 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 a much more intuitive one between um uh, what I've experienced as communities and discovering that actually the idea of community is very important to me. I mean, com community not in the way in which it's been absorbed into kind of political speak, but community very much as, as a sort of a group of people who have um, certain kinds of relationships and, and their boundaries to those relationships. And, um, and I mean it on, on a kind of living level. I mean, I've, I've for a long time lived in 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 communities of sorts um and and if and, and and sort of recognized people that i'm living in in a kind of physical proximity to as being part of the community and and um and i sort of see a link between that and institutions i mean i think they're quite different um but um but but there is a link in my mind between the two yeah, definitely. I think an institution can be a nice thing. And I, the, it's really nice to hear you talk about communities. And from my own point of view, just a little thing that we've been trying to do as much as legally as possible over, over lockdown is have a dinner at the studio on a Monday night. And that's been our institution. And, and that's been my community. It's been so important for me. And, the, you know, really um, 
and and so I guess it's like that's a way of me carving out a little space for myself and the people that I work with and um I, I suppose students are going to have to face that when they graduate as well and you, you just mentioned the the kind of uh, what sounds like a horror of working with a bigger institution and having to deal with three teams of lawyers how do, how do you carve out a little you know the space that you need in order to keep thinking and making work well the, 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 i mean it's little things it's and and um first of all it's it's to do with with meeting people as as individuals and 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 starting not to see the institution as a whole but 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 recognizing individual people and forming forming relationships with them so there are people very high up at the UN who I I didn't know at the beginning of of all of this starting but who through different ways I um, I've I've formed um, a, a, a sense of them as people and I think they have a sense of of me and and, and the producers as people and that might be through um, uh, for instance, with 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 one person um, in a conversation, suddenly thinking about a book that I thought she would like, and and sending it to her, and and that started off a, a different kind of conversation. It meant we could talk about things other than you know why hasn't the location agreement come through, which after a while kind of gets really dull. Um, and the the other day, I mean, this is this is a sort of link. I I, I did. The media talk with Peter Strickland, and Peter was asking me about what I was working on at the moment when we were talking before the media talk, and I was telling him about the United Nations project. And that evening, he sent me a scan of an illustration from a book he was reading to one of his children, and and it was a, an illustration of the United Nations building in New York by a Czech illustrator, and it was a beautiful, beautiful picture. And my immediate response was I sent it to, to all the kind of um, head honchos at the UN that, that we've been talking to, sorting out the, the location agreement. And of course, everybody loved the picture. And then and there, it set up a whole kind of network of, albeit emails, not, not conversations between people about where the picture came from. And, and, and everybody kind of responded to it. And it meant that, that then there were 10 people who up to now have, have largely been talking about the frustrations of a legal document, all of a sudden talking about a picture. Mm. And it's kind of, it's, 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 it's really nice. It's really nice how these things work. Um, and I, I guess that as a filmmaker, part of what I do is, is um, uh, set up that kind of, situation and I, I suppose when I talk with students about references it's because I, I, I've seen on, on all kinds of working situations that to be able to to be able to talk about stuff and different kinds of stuff um, is, is really useful in, in a kind of working situation mm -hmm. um, whether it's indirect or, or, or direct and and, and sometimes I think that, that students kind of don't get it because the idea of reading or looking at things is associated with a kind of schoolish approach to, you know, this is something that they've got to do and they're going to be judged on, 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 on the basis of it. Yeah, I think that, that, really, that really resonates in, in terms of like finding 
finding this like humanity within an institution and actually you know that and through conversation or through the kind of these references or points of kind of art that's outside of ourselves that we can kind of connect in this different way and actually a lot of people going around like blaming institutions and I've had that conversations with my partner about the fact like these these institutions are only so because of the individuals within them and and it only takes kind of being having more humanity between those links to kind of possibly change i guess on a, on a really absolute tangent um uh, speaking as a musician i was really fascinated by your your use of sound and um particularly relating to to longer form time um i, I don't know I'd, I'd like to hear you talk a bit selfishly i'd like to hear you talk a bit more about your, your relationship with music and time and film I don't know if I have a relationship with, much with music. I mean, I, I wish that I did, but when I, when I hear people talking passionately about music and, and with a kind of very, um, such a kind of um, adventurous sense of exploring music. I mean, again, somebody like Peter Strickland, who, who's, who's completely immersed in, in listening to, to, to stuff that, I, I wouldn't even know where to find, let alone um, have have the kind of patience to listen to it. I mean, my, you know, m m I'm I'm, um, I'm I'm really ignorant about music, and and um, and tend to listen to the same thing over and over again. I mean, for instance, I've I've been listening to Sheik's Greatest Hits now for the last month, and nothing else. And and I don't know why, but that's just kind of what sits that, that you know it's that's that's why and 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 even then when i listen to it it's not that i listen to it in the background i kind of i i, I put on I, I have kind of these these kind of headphones i put the and and so i can play it really loud and i just sit at my desk listening to it um i don't even get up and dance to it um so it, i it's really strange but when i'm making when i'm making um film I, I very often look at images and just throw all kinds of stuff at, at the film. Um, but sound is what interests me much more than music. And music, it's, it's, it becomes like most of the time, like a wallpaper to, to, to kind of cover the cracks. Um, mm. and, and, and sound was because I, I originally trained as a sound engineer in a, in a commercial sound studio. Um, that, that was... So I, I, I'd started, before doing my undergraduate degree in photography, film, television, I, I, I started a degree in maths, and, but I was really young. I was kind of 16 or 17, no, I was 17 when I went to university to do this maths degree. And after a year, I, I, I just didn't know what I was doing or why I was doing it. I mean, it, there, were, there were aspects of maths that, that since I was a child were very, very easy for me. I mean, I didn't have to kind of think about understanding them, I kind of just got it. And there are also things about maths that, that I, I, any kind of applied maths um, was, was uh, kind of no-no for me. It was sort of, if, if, if the question was about, you know, a ladder leaning against a wall and, and, and they were going, you know, what forces, blah, blah, blah. And I, I didn't have a clue, but, but things to do with sort of number theory, calculus, that, that I kind of got. And, and, um, but after a year I gave it up and I was, I was still very young, but I was really enjoying living in London. And I, um, I mean, it's a long, long story, but I, I completely by chance 
got a job in a sound studio that was called Utopia Studios. And, um, and I started working with a range of different sound engineers, but, but there was one in particular, a guy called Andy Jackson, who is still a sound engineer and works really exclusively now for the Pink Floyd. Um, and, and he was trained by a sound engineer called James Guthrie, who uh, just at the time I was starting to work, had started working with the Floyd on, on the wall. Um, and so as a sound assistant, I, I kind of, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I kind of touched on that album, but I, I sort of worked with, with a whole range of, of different bands. I mean, some, some really awful stuff like Roger Whittaker and, and, um, you know, kind of, um, but, but also sort of interesting things. And I did a, um, I did, must have been about a month working on, on a, a film soundtrack for Flash Gordon with Queen. And, and I, was, I was an assistant engineer, so I was kind of basically making, making the tea was, was your kind of primary job. But, but um, with Queen, there was a producer called Mac, who was also the engineer who, and the, that was the reason they were working in that studio is that he and I had worked on, I'd been his assistant on a couple of other things. And, mm. and, and he liked both the studio and I think he liked working with me. And, 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 um, and he really taught me a lot. I mean, there were a number of engineers that, that, that taught me a lot. Um, and um, in fact, the last thing I did there was I, I, I'd kind of progressed from being um, an assistant to being an engineer. And I, I recorded an album with, with uh, a guy called Donovan, who, who, I don't know if you remember, kind of old hippie. And mm. it, it was an album called Neutronica. And... Um, which I, I kind of really enjoyed. I mean, it was, it was, it, there was something really enjoyable about it as a, as an experience, but, but I didn't really engage with the music of it, but, but the idea of sound and sound perspectives and all through that time, it was about three years of working in the studio. I, I did um, uh, play around with, with, with um, making sort of sound concrete tapes. I mean, I used this 48 track, um, East Lake Studio for doing something that I mean nobody else was doing that kind of stuff, and I'm not quite sure where it came from. This is all kind of pre-art school, and and there was I was put in touch with somebody called David Cunningham, who was a sound artist, um, uh, and and I played some of this work to him, and he started talking to me about you know well there are people who are kind of working with this stuff, and and in fact David I I on and off have kept in touch with since then. Um, he was part of a band called the Flying Lizards, mm. um, and and is is a really really interesting artist. Um, now does a lot of sort of producing. He produced a lot of stuff for Michael Nyman. Um, yeah, interesting. And then do you see? Um, I guess coming from a music background, I see a parallel between kind of organising things in time, which is sort of how I see composition. I guess, and and probably working as a an engineer it's more bringing things together and sort of balancing things as, as sort of time progresses is there a kind of parallel between filmmaking and that do you think or, or do you see it as a separate world um i think that there are parallels and i think there are parallels in terms that i i'm a budger and i'm i'm chaotic i'm not an organized person and i'm I'm, I'm not good at following processes. And one of the things, you know, at the age of 18, to, to work as, 
as an assistant engineer, you're an apprentice, you're really taught and you're, you know, a lot of the stuff you have to do is kind of, at the time, it was much more manual operations. And so a lot of it was, you know, you, it, at the end of a session that might, might be three in the morning and you might be knackered, but you had to put all the microphones away and you had to coil the leads in a certain way and you, you had to kind of label boxes and tapes and, and you had to have absolutely accurate charts of, of where things were on the multi-track tape. And, and, and boy, did it, you know, I, I got it wrong. I mean, the number of times I, I dropped in on the wrong track as, as, a, as an assistant and sort of erased a bit of a guitar solo that, that, that somebody had done. And, 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 you know, most of the bands were quite kind of um, well-known and, and demanding in that way. So you, you, you really kind of uh, suffered for making these kind of mistakes. Um, but, um, but that taught me a lot about processes uh, i mean i still resist processes and when i made sleep furiously it was the first time that i really was my own cinematographer but i had a fantastic focus puller who who came and and taught me how to kind of how to look after the camera how to kind of keep everything um noted and organized how to do camera sheets um how to how to bag things up how to label things and and kind of simple you know simple stuff that you know if you have a whole kind of array of, of flight cases with with camera equipment in there's a whole um etiquette of how you leave those flight cases so i think it's you you would never leave a flight case open so if you've taken something out of a flight case um, then you close the flight case, but you only close it with one hook rather than two um, and and stuff like that and and um, and it, it was just good for me to learn process and and um, particularly as I, I have a kind of resistance to it. Perhaps you could talk about sort of you've you've mentioned that there is this project that you're kind of working on, but like how did you sort of arrive there? Um, so I mean. Part of it was 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 sort of thinking about materiality in a way and and about process and in a sense it could almost follow on from where we were before because th there was a point after making Sleep Furiously where I was involved again in a number of different feature films um, all of which for different reasons the project fell apart. Um, which is something that you kind of get used to and I just wanted to do something which were as free from the whole kind of mechanism and um, kind of complex structure of, of feature film production. And, um, and, and I decided that I just wanted to work with, with a still camera. And, um, and also I was kind of curious about um, notions of silence and um, and my association with silence was was very much um, to do with flat landscapes, and I thought that, and 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 so I I decided I want to work with a camera in, in in an environment in a flat landscape environment, and and it it had to be Europe because um, of cost, and I wanted to be there for a while, um, and in fact it was the 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 Welsh Arts Council. Um, gave me a, a really healthy grant to, to 
basically, I, 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 I mean, I can look up what I wrote to them, but I think it was fairly vague what I proposed to them. And, um, and they had a scheme that was specifically giving grants to people who wanted to start working in a slightly different medium to what they were used to. Um, I think were, it was called the Creative Wales Awards. And, um, and so I got one of those awards. And, and the first thing I did was, was um, put a tent in the back of the car and, and, and went to um, the north of Denmark and drove down the whole coastline of, of Denmark and there was a bit of Germany and Holland um, and Belgium and, and down through to France. And, um, and I was just looking for places that, that for some, in some way might have a resonance for me. And I didn't really, I, I, there, was, there was nothing um, particularly informed about it. And, and, I, and so I'd stop quite often and, and camp and, and, and rent bicycle. And, and um, I, was, I was with my girlfriend at the time. And, and, um, and, and so we did that over a few weeks. And, 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 and there was one place that I just thought, I, I want to come back here. This is, this is the place I want to come back to. And it was a, a place called the, the Vardenland, which is in the very north of Holland. It's north of um, Groningen. And curiously, it's, it's a, a landscape that, like all the other landscapes I've worked in, is, is sort of under threat of disappearing. And, and of the community disappearing. And in this case, because as sea levels rise, this is going to be like Borth, where I made my previous piece of work. Um, when sea levels rise, this, this, this place won't exist anymore. Um, and it's, 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 a, it's a whole sort of area and community, series of communities that, um, that are built on reclaimed land and reclaimed since the 12th century. And so if you look from, from, from the air, you can kind of see these um, dikes and polders radiating out. And they're basically from Groningen, they kind of radiate out towards the sea. Um, and um, so I'm, I, I kind of decided this is where I want to go. And I found a, a cheap place to rent for, I was there for I think about four months. And, and, and that's when I, I got um, companies to sponsor me. So I got a ferry company to, to give me a bunch of free ferry tickets and I got Land Rover to give me a Range Rover for six months. And, um, and, and all of this seemed really easy. I mean, it was kind of bizarre how all of that happened. Um, and, but I'm sort of used to doing that. Um, and I mean, that's, I, and I guess from, from working in film, working with Sleep Furiously, you know, there simply wasn't enough budget to do what I wanted to do. So I, I constantly had to negotiate in order to get things for free or get things cheaper than what they should be. And um, so in a sense, it's, it is just a continuation of that. Um, but then one of the things that happened was that, that Leica said that they would help me out with, with a lens. And, and the other thing I asked them to do was to, to service my camera. I wanted, didn't want to go with a camera that, that hadn't been checked over. And they said, yeah, just bring it in and, and, and we'll give it to the engineers and they'll look at it while you're waiting. And, and then the, the guys who checked over the camera came out and had a coffee with me and they were asking me what the project was that I was, that I was doing. And I explained to them and one of them said to me, um, I guess you, you've, you've been looking at 
working with a, a Hasselblad X-Pan camera as well. And I said, no, I hadn't heard of that camera. And they explained that this was a 35mm um, camera that, in fact, Fuji made, but Hasselblad put, put their um, sort of brand to. Um, and but it's it uses two 35 mil frames side by side, so it's a it's a three by one aspect ratio, almost three by one. I think it's it's two point eight five to one, and um, which is exactly the aspect ratio that I shot both in, and um, and I thought God, I need I need to start working with one of these cameras. Um, so I I got one, and so I had I had two cameras. I had the the Leica. Um, which I use with two lenses and and the Hasselblad, and um, and I I got a, a bag for the front of the bike. Uh, it's not a bag, but it was kind of a box that I modified so I could so it would take the two cameras very comfortably. And then I had saddle bags where where I kept film and all the other kind of you know rain gear and blah 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 blah. So I had a um, I had a bike that that every day I could go out on and and I had everything that I needed with me. And it was you know I was I was kind of I was weatherproof as well. There was something kind of wonderful about that. And and I got a, a sat nav company to give me a, a bike sat nav. So I mapped out routes every day. I mean, sometimes not sometimes, very often repeating the same route. I mean, that's another thing that, that I've noticed has become it's not just part of my work, it's part of the way I live. Is it's funny. I, I, I do you know that um that film by uh, oh no, I can't remember who it's by, but it's with Jack Nicholson called As Good As You Get, where he's he's got He's kind of autistic, and he's a he's a grumpy git who 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 simply does the same thing over and over again. And if if people kind of obstruct his daily routine, he gets even grumpier. And and I discovered that that I I am kind of like that character. I mean, I I I am generally quite grumpy, and get even more grumpy if I can't you know if I can't have the same table in my calf every day. I I it kind of throws me i mean i i shouldn't admit it but sometimes i you know i walk out of the cafe that i go to for breakfast if i can't have my table and i'll wait till that table comes free i wouldn't go as far as jack nicholson character who would actually throw the people off the table but but i feel like that and um but i do that with walking so i i tend to when i walk and, and walking is my thing much more than cycling I tend to walk the same routes over and over again, and I always have done. And and I I now I, I walk with my dog, and 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 I think for a dog there's there's something quite reassuring about that. I mean Otto knows exactly where we're going, and 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 there's and we're very we're both very comfortable with that sort of sense of routine. Um, so so yeah, so every every day, um, Holland, I would I would do one of a, a series of different routes going out with Cameron and um and after about I think it was after about a month and a half I I stopped for a short while to take all my film to the lab because I I didn't really I didn't really trust sending stuff by courier because it of the x-rays mm -hmm. and and um and, and I had a sort of x-ray proof bag for film so um I took the film back to the UK and had it processed and 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 then scanned um, just very low res scans. I mean, I had a process that I'd already established to do with a certain kind of film stock. Um, so I was working with an 800 ASA Fuji, Fuji Neg, 
um, very specific cameras, lenses, um, process always pushing one stop, um, then doing low res scans. And I discovered for high res scans, I tried all different kinds of scanners and, and, and I found that, um, that, that the Imacon, the Hasselblad Imacon for me was the best scanner. Um, and, um, and so that, that became the process. And, and very quickly, um, there was a very particular quality of, um, I suppose, of, of, of framing um, and, and certainly a particular kind of texture to, um, to the images that, that, um, that I recognized in, in the work. Um, and, and I started looking at, at, at a lot of Dutch landscape painting, but in particular early Mondrian. Um, and, and I was really interested in the relationship between, between Mondrian's early figurative landscape work and, and, and his movement into, into um, much more geometric um, forms. And then in fact, I've only just picked it up, but I haven't had time to, to read it. There's, there's um, I mean, that's my, my next thing. Um, the, it's it's not even essays. It's it's almost written as a play. Mondrian mm -hmm. wrote this this play that's that's um, that's in a way connecting his his early landscape work to. And then there was also a connection that I discovered fairly recently um, between seventeenth uh, Dutch land, landscape painting and Beckett. I didn't realize that that Beckett um, did a lot of research into early. Dutch landscape painting and and a lot of the kind of qualities of um, sound and silence in in his writing um, have been certainly in terms of academia they connect it to his interest in that form of landscape painting and um, and and the last time I went back to Holland was in the summer and and I I went back with Super Eight cameras I mean I I took Stills cameras as well but I took Super Eight camera. And I also, or several Super 8 cameras, and and also sound recording equipment, um, and and I've sort of started now working in the same environment, but but with sound and and film. I'm not sure how effective the Super 8 is in terms of what I'm doing, and and I've I've started also working with with prints of the the photographic work that I'm doing but I'm kind of a bit confused about scale at the moment and I um I've, I've been printing the work quite large but n never really seeing it I mean that's that's one of the problems I mean I I kind of can I can see work prints but I can't even see work prints altogether mm -hmm. um and I took the work I've not really had the sort of um dialogues that I want to have about the work. I, I took several years ago, I took a sort of early um, lot of the work that I've been doing to Robert Farland, who writes on landscape, um, who's based in Cambridge. And, and we had a fantastic conversation about it. Um, and there've been several other people that I've talked to about it, but I, I, I still, um, I'm still not, um, I still haven't found a sort of foundation on which, on, on how to think about what I'm doing. It's really nice to hear you talk about that dialogue around work. And I think, I mean, something obviously we, we really try and engender in students. And it's really nice to hear some of the 
very established also needing that dialogue around their work and, and I, I certainly feel like without that I feel very lost and, and really need need a conversation to happen around making. Um, well, I, I seek people out then I mean very very specifically so I, I didn't know Rob McFarland at all I mean I knew his writing and I just wrote to him um, with Sleep Furiously my, my kind of in a way my equivalent of my tutor the person I spoke to you know, at least once a month was was Peter Huntko, who, who at the time, I mean, most people I knew didn't know who he was, and and he subsequently won the Nobel Prize for for literature. But but I used to go and see him, yeah, once a month while making Sleep Furiously. And then when I was editing, I was editing in Paris, and he would come to the cutting room, kind of. I think he came three times during the the edit, and and and, and I and, and it was for me to, to talk with. I I wanted to talk with somebody who I felt kind of got what what I was doing, and mm. um and I thought he he was. I mean, I approached him because I'd been reading a play that he had written called Casper, which is essentially a play which explores ideas about language, which is language is is kind of central to. To his world, and um, and, and he, he, I discovered somebody who who has a kind of intellect and way of thinking about things that um, that really kind of opened up um, possibilities for me. Um, mm. Another person who who I met through making a film, um, God, twenty five years ago, is is an, uh, a philosopher and writer called Theodore Zeldin. Um, who, who wrote a book in, called An Intimate History of Humanity. And, and, um, and, and Theodore now is, is, is a very important person in my life. And uh, I would call a, a close friend. And, um, and he, he completely, I mean, he offered up so much stuff that made me think about the world in different ways. Um, but I mean, for me, this is a kind of constant thing. Yeah, um, I think I kind of, when um when you were speaking before and kind of even right back from kind of being in a sound recording studio and talk and kind of seeing these people who are quite well known and then kind of you're quite um sort of not there doesn't seem to be a a lot of people kind of feel oh I, sh I couldn't I shouldn't talk to that person because they're at this level or that it feels like you're very free in terms of how you kind of connect and speak to people and and sort of in a way thinking about not in a way like using them in any way, but thinking of experience as a material. So like the actual experience of kind of um, making these connections and, and being in a room becomes part of the work itself in, in a kind of more abstract way. But I think um, it, it kind of makes sense for me as a as a practitioner as well, in terms of like, I, I sometimes struggle with connecting out to people, but I think like in the communities that I'm in at the moment, like I'm making work with my neighbors and I'm sort of like and and kind of that exchange has become um sort of really instrumental to how I've started to develop the work and, and having a connection with people who might not have anything to do with art actually has made it um made me see things in a different way so I, I think kind of something resonated in the way that you kind of work with people um but again this comes back to communities I think Sarah because because I I, I approach people largely because I discovered that people also came to approach me and, and people that, that I, I wouldn't have dreamt in a million years would have 
come to approach me. So, I mean, an example would be, um, I remember after screening in, in New in, in, Sleep Curiously in New York at MoMA, um, some, somebody set up a, um, a lunch with, for me with, with um, Siri Husvet and Paul Oster, who'd seen, seen the film and really loved it. And, and through that, that's, that set up a, a kind of a, a conversation. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's all the time there's kind of stuff like that. And then, then people that you're friends with who, who um, you know, people that you might have known when, 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 when you were students, who, some of whom have become sort of well-known and, 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 but those dialogues continue. Um, you know, for, for me, another important person who I was slave with is Andrew Cotting and, and, and Andrew, somebody I kind of love dearly. And, 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 and um, it's important for me to see him. We don't see each other that often, but at least once a year, we'll meet up and, 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 and we'll go for a walk and we talk about stuff. And we, we, know, we know where we are in, in life with each other. And, and, um, and it's not always talking about work. In fact, it's very often not talking about work, but it's, it's talking about things that inevitably connect to work. Mm -hmm. And inform work, and and um, and 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 how through through people you you end up meeting other people. I mean, another artist who is really really important to me is is Kathy De Mancho. Um and and um, more recently, one of my neighbours, Goshka Makuga, who who and, and and these are all people that that. Um, that I just think uh, in, introduce different perspectives and ways of thinking about things and understanding things. And, and sometimes on a particular piece of work, I'll actually kind of get in touch with somebody and say, I, I really want to talk with you about this or that. And, and sometimes people don't respond. I mean, you know, that's, that's also, um, it's kind of part of the deal that, 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 that you, you have to kind of accept rejection. Mm -hmm. Um, and also tutors. So, for instance, my my tutor from from um, the London College of Printing, Ken McMullen, is again somebody who I'm I'm still very close to and with, and and who's very important um, to me. And, and for instance, with the I, he was somebody I showed those an iteration of these Flatlands photographs to, and. And that was completely by chance. Ken and I had met for a coffee and I happened to have a box full of these images with me. Um, I'd been, in fact, I'd shown them that morning to somebody else who's important to me, who's a guy called Michael Morris, who works, uh, who runs Art Angel. And, 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 but Ken saw this box and he said, oh, what's in the box? And I said, some photographs. And Ken said, can you show me the photographs? And I was kind of a bit hesitant, but I showed them to him and he didn't say anything didn't say anything at all. I put photographs away and I, I ended up going home. And two days later, he sent me a text and he just said, those images are more important than probably you'll ever understand. And, and, and there was something kind of just, just so generous and um, reassuring and, and kind of helpful about it. I mean, clearly Ken sensed that I was feeling very um, insecure about this work and, and wanted to say something that, that would make me feel um, stronger about it, mm -hmm. um, and 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 he 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 
you know, he knows me well enough to know what, what buttons to press to do that. Um, Stuart Risney. Um, I mean, in fact, um, so Tim, Tim Brennan and I started teaching in Manchester at the same time. And, and uh, we met for a coffee. And within five minutes, we discovered that we were both um, students of Stuart Brisley's. And, and, and we stopped talking about anything to do with college. And we were just talking about Stuart because we both, again, have a kind of uh, deep, really profound admiration, respect for him. And, and, and then I think it was last year, Tim and I met in London and, and did a long, long walk through East London and to go and visit Stuart. It was a sort of pilgrimage we made together. Um, just just to meet with Stuart and talk with Stuart. And there was something, there's kind of something wonderful about that. And you did, in, in, for that period of time, I think it, 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 as, as kind of both being students of the same tutor, there's almost like a sense of being brothers. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's really interesting how profound those relationships can be. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a good place to to end the interview i think of the conversation thanks for your time it's very generous and we, yeah. we, we really appreciate it no it's a pleasure the music for this podcast was provided by a second exchange student to Kapilonen, and if you would like to hear more you can ask him about it and if you would like to donate some of your music to the podcast please get in touch Thanks for listening.